0: Roger Udarian and Pete Fleming began to make contact with the Wildani Indians. Some of you know this story. It was in a movie called The End of the Spear. Over the next few years, they dropped presents out of planes and made their way through the jungle to meet the tribe of Indians. They set up camp on a sandbar near the village, and they begin to approach the tribe. Shortly after this, They were separated and they were killed, all five were killed by the Wildani Indians. The families of these missionaries then did something really unexpected. Rachel Saint, sister of Nate Saint, and Elizabeth Elliott, the wife of Jim Elliott, began to work towards going back to reach the Wildani Indians. Sure enough, they went back to Ecuador and they served as missionary Bible translators among the Wildani Indians. After years of working in the area, many members of the tribe converted to Christianity, even some of those who had taken part in the murder of the five missionaries. One of the sons of the missionaries who was killed wrote this years after his father's death. He said, my father lost his life at the end of the spear." But it was at the end of the spear that Minkayani, that was the man who killed his father, found his. It's true that my dad and his four friends were not given the privilege of watching their children and grandchildren grow up. But Minkayani is a grandfather. And it's the first time in the Waudani history that they have had so many grandfathers. He's not only a grandfather to his children, he's a grandfather to my children. My dad would have liked that. Through the years, people could always identify with our loss, but they could never imagine the way in which we experienced gain. How did they do it? How do you become reconciled to somebody who killed your family member? How do you write years after your father's death that instead of your father being a grandfather to your kids. The tribesman who murdered him is a grandfather to your kids. How did these women go into the jungle to the tribe who killed their loved ones? How did their kids find it in their hearts to forgive these men? How did they let down their guard and make these men a part of their own family? Because they knew that their heavenly father had done the same thing for them. They knew that their Heavenly Father had done the exact same thing for them. Reconciliation makes you do crazy things. Reconciliation with our Heavenly Father, knowing that God has made our relationship with Him right, makes you do crazy, crazy things, like these people did with the Wildani Indians. In Romans 5... 1 through 11, we have a roadside stop in the book of Romans. Now, we've been in the book of Romans in this class for how many weeks? A few weeks. I remember about a month ago I was here. We started Romans, and I know Steve has taught three or four times since then. So you are kind of understanding that Romans is a pretty high-speed letter. You run through Romans, same argument for 11 chapters, and in chapter 5, we get a roadside stop and a recap of what's been happening and what's to come. In Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. In the first three chapters of Romans, we talk about the problem of sin. Romans chapter 1 says everybody has sinned. Everybody's without excuse. Nobody can claim that they didn't know, because chapter 1 tells us that God's attributes are visible to us in the things that he's created so that we are without excuse when we suppress the truth and begin to worship created things instead of the creator. In chapter 2, Paul moves directly talking to Jews. He says, The Jews have abandoned the law of God. They have not been faithful covenant keepers. They are enemies of God, and they're set against him. And just in case any of the Gentiles think we might be righteous because we are not Jews, chapter 3 says... All have sinned without distinction. Everybody has sinned. But then there's a turning point in chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beginning in chapter 4, Paul gives the example of Abraham, what it means to live by faith, what it means not to trust in your own works and the things that you've done in your righteousness, but in the righteousness of God. And now in chapter 5, we come across this verse. Therefore, since we have been made right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What I want to talk about today is the motivation for the story of the missionaries and the Wildani people. It is mind-blowing to me that they could forgive something like that. It's mind-blowing to me that you could forgive and go back. It's totally unexplainable to me that you could have a normal, loving relationship like they do with the Wildani people. But one of the things that this passage tells us is that if this is really true, if our relationship with God has been made right, there are some visible signs that should take place in our life. This is one of the clearest gospel presentations in the Bible. The gospel is the good news of what God has done for sinners like us. The good news of what God has done for sinners like us. And the question we want to answer today is, what's so good about the good news? What's so good about the good news? Now, in order to flesh this out, we need to go over a couple of terms The most foundational claim of the chapter of 5, 1 through 11, which sets the precedent for everything that's going to be talked about through chapter 8. So this is almost a table of contents for the next four chapters. The theme of this is a restored relationship with God results in unexplainable joy. A restored relationship with God results in unexplainable joy. So let's talk about a couple of terms. First of all, we come across a very churchy word, In chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. Justified is not a word that we commonly use to talk about what this passage is referring to. So justified means to be made right. To have right standing. It's used over 30 times in the book of Romans. It's one of the theme words in Romans. Justified over 30 times. Justification through faith is a legal phrase. It's a legal term that Paul is using. They would have recognized it as something that was used in a courtroom. This is the part of the trial where the judge comes out and he's going to deliver a verdict. He's going to say guilty or not guilty. And especially in a world like the Roman world, where there wasn't a priority on innocent until proven guilty, this was a big deal. The judge comes out, he's going to say whether you are guilty and will spend the rest of your life marred as a criminal or are you going to be made right again, not guilty. Justification is the verdict of not guilty, not guilty. And in our situation, this is puzzling because we are guilty, right? We are guilty. Chapters one through four have proven that to us. We only need to go through one or two of the 20-some-odd vices listed in chapter 1 to know we are in violation of God's law. But instead, when the time comes for God to pronounce a verdict on our life, if we have put our faith in Christ, our verdict is not guilty. But that's not all. There's another word that we need to know in this chapter. This is the word imputation. Imputation. This is something that is a financial term. So Paul's using all kinds of language, and there's actually a really important point for us. One of the things that Paul was best at is taking terms and concepts and themes in his culture and turning them around to be used by God. So everybody would have known what being justified was, but they would only have thought about it for a certain section of people who were going before a judge. Paul takes that term, and he brings it in front of everybody. He says, everybody here is on trial. Everybody here is in need of one verdict or the other. And for you, if you put your trust in Christ, it is justified. In the same way, now Paul takes a term from the financial industry, imputation. Imputation is something that is given. It's something posted to the ledger, something written in the books. When you have justification, you're not just let off scot-free. You're given something. Imputation means that you have been given the righteousness of Christ as if they took a large sum of money and they put it into your account. So not only have we been declared righteous, we actually get to be treated like we are righteous. What is it that's been a, that's been deposited into our account? The merit of Jesus. Everything that could be given to a person who lives perfectly Has now been credited to me and to you. Everything that you would gain, everything that you would deserve for living an absolutely perfect life, whatever sum of money that would be, it's like Paul saying, that sum of money has been put into your account. So we have been made right with God. We have been declared to be justified. We have been given what Jesus deserved. We've been imputed. It is on our ledger. That we have the result of a righteous life. So Paul is laying the foundation in, in verses one and two. We've been justified. We have peace with God. Through him, we obtain access. You start to see that there are implications that are made from this process. If our relationship with God has been restored, then things are going to drastically change for us. And before we go into talking about exactly what these changes are, I want us to talk just for a moment. I don't want us to miss the power of a restored relationship. So at your tables, take a couple of minutes and maybe somebody or two people at your table. I want you to share a story where you reconciled a relationship with somebody else. And I want you to tell your table, and then hopefully one or two of you can tell the group. I want you to tell your table the change that took place after the relationship was restored. In this passage, one of our temptations is to talk about the justification, imputation, as if our relationship with God was transactional. So God doesn't count things against us. He's declared us righteous, and then he sent us on our way and told us to be good. That's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, one of the things that, that is really clear in this passage, if you're looking at your note page, I got to make a comment, they make you turn in these note pages before you even got a lesson done. So I put basically the, the way that this passage goes, and one of the, the, one of the reasons I did that is because you'll see on the note page, the passage is repetitive. It's repetitive. It has a structure to it. We're talking about joy. We're talking about reconciliation. We're talking about suffering over and over and over again. This passage is very circular. And at the beginning and at the end, what runs through the whole thing is reconciliation, relationship. And so one of the things that we can't miss is that if we think our relationship with God is merely transactional, we're missing out completely on the result of being justified by faith, which is a right relationship with God. We see this in verse two. Well, in in the second half of one into two. So if we've been justified, then we have peace with God. Through him, we've obtained access to him into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Reconciliation is the reuniting Restoring of a relationship. It brings a a friendship that has been estranged back into communion. And in this passage, the thing that follows from reconciliation is rejoicing. If you have a restored relationship with someone, the fruit of that restoration is joy. It's joy. There's joy in the relationship, and we have joy in our relationship with God. Because we've been restored to him. Now, I know the question. This is the question that ran through my mind, and it might be the question that's running through your mind. Well, I don't feel very joyful. I don't feel like my relationship with God has been reconciled because if it did, if my my relationship with him was restored, things would be going very different in my life. You talk about, you're saying this to me, you talk about God crediting things to my account, I wish he would credit some money to my account, right? If he's the God of the universe, he's not short on change. Why isn't he giving me more stuff? Paul knows we're asking that question. And he takes an odd turn. And in the next few verses, we're going we're to talk about two signs. Two signs. Take these to the bank. These are signs that your relationship has been restored. Number one. This is not what we would have expected. This is not what I would have written in Romans. We've been restored to Christ. We have access. We are rejoicing in him and we rejoice in our sufferings. Wouldn't it make more sense? Don't you think it would make more sense if we're speaking with our flesh here? That a restored relationship, access by faith, grace in which we stand rejoicing. We wouldn't even have to talk about sufferings anymore much less rejoicing in our sufferings. The first sign that our relationship with Christ, through Christ, has been restored is that we find the ability to boast in our sufferings, in our afflictions. Now let's break down this word, and there's a little chain that Paul is going to take us on after this that explains why we can rejoice in our sufferings, why we can boast in our sufferings. So the word here is one of the It's one of the best words, most fun Greek words to say. The word for sufferings in this passage, and it's all through Revelation, is flipsis. Flipsis. Not a sound we make in English. Flipsis. Trouble, afflictions, sufferings, persecutions. Really, at its base, it's anything that causes us pain. Anything that causes pain. We rejoice when we are caused pain. Why? Knowing, being assured. This verb is firm. We are assured that suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. The word endurance in the New Testament literally means to stand up under something, to be able to stand up Under something means to endure, to have endurance, means to bear up under a burden. As we suffer, as we are put through pain, as we are afflicted, we develop the ability to stand up under something. And as we begin to endure, verse four, endurance produces character. Character, tested character. We see this all through the New Testament. James 1.3, the testing of your faith produces character character. This is the kind of character we mean when we say it builds character. How many of you have ever done a job that builds character? I think those jobs build resentment more than they build character. If, if that was true, I got punished a lot as a kid. I built a lot of character as a kid. If all of that was true, I'd have a lot more character than I do now. I've earned it. This is the kind of thing we mean when leather gets broken in. You know, when you have a nice new leather pair of shoes, they're not that fun to walk around in. They look nice, but they need to be broken in, right? Leather soled shoes or leather upper on your shoes, they need to be broken in. And this term, proven character, is the same way we would talk about leather that's being broken in. Or a new pair of shoes that begins to fit your foot. Endurance produces character. And finally, the place we've been wanting to get to, character produces hope. Character produces hope. We're gonna come back to this, but one of the things that we learn about afflictions is that they are both sobering and satisfying. In the context of scripture, if our suffering is done in the context of a relationship with God that's been restored, then our suffering is both sobering and satisfying. It is sobering knowing that we are finite, right? We are finite people. Our bodies will break down. We, unless the Lord comes back, will die. We will undergo afflictions. Jesus says through many trials, you will suffer. A servant is not greater than his master. Over and over again, we know there's a sobering reality that as Christians, we will suffer. But suffering in a Christian sense is also satisfying. It's satisfying to know That whatever happens to us, and this doesn't mean that it's not miserable, because if it's not actually causing pain, if it's one of those like faux sufferings where it looks like suffering from the outside, but you're not actually in pain, it doesn't count as thlipsis, right? Thlipsis has to have pain involved. It's satisfying to know that every ounce of pain and affliction in the Christian life has the opportunity to lead to hope, to hope. It's sobering and satisfying in the same way that the gospel is sobering and satisfying. It's sobering to know that the only thing we contributed to this whole deal was the need. The only thing we contributed was weakness. But it's satisfying to know that that's the only thing that's required. Our suffering is something that we have the potential to boast in because we have a restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. Sufferings produce endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Sign number one is that we boast in our afflictions. Sign number two, we hope in unexplainable places. We hope in unexplainable places. Why? Look at verse five. Because, why do we hope? Because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One of the driving points of this passage is that we are not the ones who made ourselves right with God. We're not. We didn't just wake up one day and decide, I'm gonna change all of this. I'm gonna go ahead and just be good for the rest of my life. No, what this passage says is that God died for us in verse when we were at our worst. And so one of the things that this passage makes clear to us is we are not the cause of the right relationship with God. God is. And because of that, we will never be put to shame. We'll never be put to shame. The word here means humiliated. We will not be humiliated. And if you do a study of that word, if, if, if for a moment you're not so sure that this is true, look up the word humiliated or be put to shame in the Bible. Over and over and over again, God says to his people, Psalm 25, three, those who trust in the Lord will never, ever be ashamed. They'll never be ashamed. And I was thinking this week, what would this look like? Like, I'm not worried about being ashamed. And so I start to think in the context of this passage. I'll tell you exactly what this is like. This is almost too easy for us in Oklahoma City. I'll tell you exactly what this is like. Imagine at the beginning of next basketball season, Kevin Durant shows up at the Chesapeake Arena. It's before the game. He goes, most of you know Kevin Durant now plays for the Golden State Warriors, right? Okay. Some of you tried to forget that, but... Imagine with me next season that Kevin Durant shows up at the Chesapeake Arena. He's getting warmed up. He goes and sits in front of his old locker. He's starting out. He shoots warm-up shots with the team. They all go back into the locker room. KD runs in there with them. He comes out for the announcements. They don't announce his name, but he walks out, high-fives everybody anyway. At some point, somebody's going to stop him and say, what are you doing here? And he's going to look over at Russell Westbrook, and he's going to say, Russ, man, vouch for me. You know, I I should be here. And Russell Westbrook is going to look at him and say, get out of here. You sold us out. You betrayed us. Go back to Oracle Arena where you belong. Right? Nobody's going to be like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's okay. You come back. You just play with us for the time being. Everybody in that arena is going to want him gone. I saw a sign. I saw a picture this week that at Academy you can get a a, uh, Thunder KD jersey for 48 cents right now. I saw a caption that said, if you have two quarters you can get a Kevin Durant jersey. Wish he would have played two good quarters against Golden State. In the same way that we would be repulsed by Kevin Durant coming back into Chesapeake, putting on a Thunder jersey, pretending like nothing had ever happened, that's the scene for us. At the end of time, when we stand before the throne of judgment, the charges are read against us, you did this, you did this, you did this, the accuser stands there and says, what do you think you're doing? You're playing for a different team. You started out on this team. But you blew it. You betrayed them. You went somewhere else. You've been playing your whole career with me. And at that moment, we would be utterly humiliated if it weren't for Christ saying, No, 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 no. He's on my team, he's on this team. You have been one of Christ's enemies until you accepted him. And now he has made you his friend, his teammate. We find hope in unexplainable places because our relationship with God has been restored like nothing ever happened. Paul does something interesting here. We've got our two signs of what it looks like to have a restored relationship. We're boasting in sufferings. We are finding hope in unexplainable places. And now Paul's going to take an apologetic sidebar. I love these in Paul's letters. This is for the doubter, right? If you're in here and you're Kind of not 100% on board with that whole justification thing. You don't really get the imputation thing. It so says, that's not working for me. Paul is speaking to you. For, how do we know this is true? I'm doubtful. For, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God, shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. How did he do this? How did he pour his love into our hearts? How did he justify us? Paul poses this question. Who would die for their enemy? Who would would die for their enemy? And now he's he's taking names in this part, right? He says, some of you guys might die for a good person, a righteous person. Probably even fewer would die for an okay person. But God died for his enemies, And this is a natural impulse, right? This is just, this to me is a knockdown punch because if you're sitting here and you're wondering if God really loves you, or maybe you're sitting here and you can't forgive yourself for what you've done, or maybe you're sitting in this position where you're like, maybe God loves everybody else, but he doesn't love me. Check, Check your heart for a moment. Would you die for a righteous person? Would you die for an okay person? I'm gonna confess something to you guys. A couple months ago, this was maybe almost nine months ago because it was cold. It must have been like in January. I'm I'm on May Avenue right behind where we are here, not too far from the church. And uh, I'm driving down May Avenue. This guy cuts me off maybe two feet from my bumper. I mean, I I was about to lay on the horn, but I would react too fast. Anyway, a guy cuts me off. And of course, we end up at the light where he is right here next to me. So I'm trying not to look, trying to control my temper. The guy gets out of his car, goes around. There's something wrong with the car, apparently. So he gets out, shuts the door. This is like the coldest day of January. I mean, it is freezing cold. doesn't have a coat on. He opens the door, goes around, flips up the, the, uh, the hood of the car, looks in there, puts it down, goes back, tries to open the door. He has locked himself out. <laughs> Of his car, it is running. He is at the light on May, right over there by uh, that, uh, right over there by um, the Panda Express place. The car is running. He does not have a coat on. His, he's locked himself out of the car. It's freezing cold. And you know what I did? I just drove on by. <laughs> I just drove on by. I drove. I didn't even look at him twice, and I'm not going to tell you what I thought. I've already confessed enough here. (laughs) Check your heart. Would you die for an okay person? I wouldn't even get out of my car for a scumbag. (laughs) Would you die for an okay person? Would you die for a righteous person? In case you think that God doesn't love you, God died while you were his worst enemy, his worst enemy. How do we know that God has poured his love into our hearts? Because he died when we were on the other team. He sent his son to purchase us, even though we were rebelling against him. God sent his son to die for us. The argument of this passage is from a lesser to a greater, right? So he's basically saying, look, if he died for you, if he shed his blood for you while you were an enemy, then how much do you think he's going to do for you now that he is alive and you are his friend? How much do you think he will give to you now that he is raised from the dead and you have been made his friend? So don't doubt for a minute that we can boast in our sufferings or that we can find hope in places that the world has no hope. Paul, one of the things I love about Paul is that he gives plenty of recaps. In verse 10, he just recaps the whole argument. We've been reconciled, saved by his life, verse 11. More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. We're back at the beginning. We've got right relationship, and we've got joy. That's the theme. A right relationship with God results in unexplainable joy unexplainable joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book called Joy Unspeakable. When the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, you receive joy unspeakable. We rejoice in God. So I want to challenge you this week. If we are really living this passage, we will see signs in our life of what a restored relationship with God looks like. We will see signs, but they are not easy signs. They're hard signs. And I know somebody is sitting in here this morning saying, you don't know the kind of suffering that I am enduring. How dare you tell me that we can boast in our sufferings? I want to challenge you this week. The Bible says, if you are a friend of God, that your life may be miserable, but there's hope in your sufferings. So here's the two things. Number one, find something satisfying in your sobering suffering. Find something, one thing, find something that is satisfying. Endurance, character, hope, friendship with God. Find something satisfying in your sobering suffering. It may just be that your suffering one day will come to an end. Maybe that's the only thing you're holding on to right now. Find something satisfying in your sobering suffering. Number two, find hope in an unexplainable place. Find hope in an unexplainable place. This passage says, those who trust in Christ will never be put to shame. And there are a lot of opportunities for Christians to be ashamed right now. Take a moment this week to find hope in cultural shame. Take a moment to find hope in an unexplainable place. A couple of, about a year ago now, Elizabeth Elliott died. Jim Elliott's wife died. She had spent her whole life ministering, not just to the Wildani tribe but to those who had been alienated from God. And at the end of her life, she left a legacy that she probably didn't get to see all of the fruit that was taking place. She probably didn't get to see all of the things that God brought. But before she died, she was doing an interview, and one of the things that she said was, all of my life can be summarized by a friendship, a friendship with my Lord Jesus christ be a friend of christ this week let me pray father we thank you for your friendship we thank you that you have restored our relationship with you we thank you that you have declared us righteous you have given us what we would have earned with a perfect life but but that's not it lord you want to have a continuing friendship relationship with us we praise you for that lord help us this week to boast in our sufferings lord to find hope in the places that the world does not expect it. Lord, make us people who know that if we have you as our friend, we don't need anything else. Father, I praise you for this group. I pray for safe travel for Steve and for Rhonda. I pray that you'd bring them back safely. We thank you for them. We praise you for the gifts you've given him and what he's meant to this group. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.